Today's lesson is taken from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard here, bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You, sh you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob them. The wages of a hard worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as in slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother or sister in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of them. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke in the 10th chapter, beginning at the 25th verse. Lord Jesus Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers, who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and when he set him on it, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. As we remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with, with us today. 
We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified in our midst would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Love God, grow together, serve our world. About nine years ago, the wardens and I, with the Bible in one hand and our history, the the story that God was knitting into our community in the other, prayerfully reflected on who God was calling us to be as a church, how we could lay a hold of the fullness of life that God offers us in Jesus. And one of the fruits of that process was a statement a statement that would guide our communal life together, a statement that was easy to remember and could be understood by someone at any stage of a spiritual journey, and it was this. We're called to love God, grow together, and serve our world. Now, as we enter this new season as a church, after an extended period apart, we've returned to that statement to reorient ourselves to who we're called to be as church. And today we'll press into that final phrase, serve our world. Now there are many places we could go to reflect on such a phrase, but today I've chosen a passage from Luke chapter 10. And if you have your Bible with you or want to grab a pew Bible or open up a Bible app, it's in Luke chapter 10 beginning at verse 25. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a a parable that is probably the most well-known teaching of Jesus. And being so well-known, there's a danger. A danger to say, well, I know what that's all about. But the Word of God is, is living. And the Holy Spirit is our true teacher and is with us and can bring home to us something new and transformative each and every time we hear it. We go to this parable because at the heart of serving our world, is love, a love of neighbor. Now, the parable itself isn't standalone. It's part of a larger conversation. And we've got to see the parable through that conversation or we'll miss the full power of it. Jesus is approached here by a lawyer, a scribe, a Pharisee, someone who's given themselves over to the study of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he comes to Jesus with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we often hear that question is asking, how do I get to heaven when I die? But from the scribe's worldview, that's not what he's asking. He's asking, how do I live a life that is consistent with the age to come? When God's will would be done on earth as in heaven. When Messiah, God's anointed, will bring a kingdom of of shalom, full flourishing in every aspect of life. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I live a life that is consistent with that future and will go on into that future? Now, it's a question that Luke tells us was meant to test Jesus, to trap him. How? Well, more than likely, as was a common complaint of the religious leaders, they've seen Jesus spending time with sinners and outcasts. 
And he thinks that the only way that Jesus could do something like that is if he's gone soft on God's laws. If he's rejected a biblical worldview. Perhaps he's expecting Jesus to say, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. God accepts everyone into his kingdom. And if he admits that, he'll have losing popularity with the crowds will be the least of his worries. Now, Jesus rarely answers a question face off. More often than not, he uses a common rabbinic teaching tool where he answers a question with a question that leads the questioner on a journey to discover the truth for themselves that changes the entire nature of the conversation. Jesus responds to his question, well, you should know. The answer's in the law. How how do you read it? What do you see at the heart of it? The lawyer responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Wonderful. Great answer, says Jesus. I'm right there with you. Love is at the heart of the age to come. When you live in love, you live in step with the kingdom. Conversation over, right? He and the scribe have found this beautiful common ground. And he too begins to follow Jesus. Well, not quite. In verse 29, the lawyer now feels that he needs to justify himself. And what's the opposite of justify? Condemn. The lawyer's feeling condemned by his own answer. Perhaps his answer is God is think- him thinking. Do I really love my neighbor as myself? Do I seek to meet the needs of my neighbor with this, the same passion and joy and drive and forethought as I seek to meet my own? Do I find as much joy in their successes as I find in my successes? Do I grieve their losses the way I would grieve my losses? Do I really love my neighbor as myself? He's feeling condemned by his own answer. And that inner turmoil of condemnation bubbles over into a question. Who's my neighbor? You see, that question was furiously debated by his peers. By those debates and the changing nature of the Hebrew language, a neighbor had come to be defined as someone who lived close, as a fellow Jew who knew the law and obeyed it. It's like me saying that my neighbor is a, a Caucasian, low-church Anglican who lives in Corktown, and since probably all of them are going to listen to the sound of my voice today, and you're rather lovable, I fulfilled the demands of the law. Who is my neighbor? It's a question intended to limit the scope of the law, to make it attainable response, Jesus tells a parable. From the opening line, we are invited into a vivid story rooted in first century experience. A man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a well-known road, at least by reputation. It was 17 miles long. It dropped 3,000 feet to Jericho, twisting and turning through desert and crags. In places there were, there were cliffs and ravines and one false step would send you tumbling to your death. 
There were caves dotting the landscape, ample hiding places for bands of thieves to prey upon unsuspecting travelers. And there was a place along that road where so many people had been mugged and murdered that they called it the Pass of Blood. Those listening to Jesus then would not be all that surprised when this traveler is jumped, stripped, mugged, beaten, and left for dead. Now first, a priest and a Levite travel down the road. They're both involved in the worship of the temple, and both pass by on the other side. Now in the commentators, much is made of their motivations. As religious leaders... They presumed, perhaps, that he was dead. They knew if they touched a dead body, it would make them unclean for seven days and unable to perform their religious duties. Or it could be that they feared for their lives. For bands of thieves would often leave hurt travelers on the road as decoys to lure other victims in. Whatever the motivation, they're thinking primarily of themselves. Jesus is employing here a common teaching tool, the rule of threes. The first introduces the topic, the second suggests a pattern, and then the third either drives it home or unexpectedly changes it. And so with the pattern set, everyone listening to Jesus is waiting for the unexpected turn. The the next traveler is going to be the hero of the story. Perhaps a a Jewish layperson or or a scribe, a Pharisee. We often see them as the antagonists of the gospel story, but not so in their culture. They were the most highly respected people. And so nothing prepares them for what comes next. The hero of Jesus' story is a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hated one another. To the Jews, the Samaritans were a half-breed nation of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles, creating a a syncretistic faith. There had been many hostilities. Chief among them, at least from a Jewish standpoint, was that the Samaritans had blocked the rebuilding of the temple. The Samaritans built their own temple, which the Jews destroyed. And in retaliation, the Samaritans broke into the temple and spread human remains around the temple to scandalize worshippers at Passover And that during the lifetime of Jesus' listeners. There are racial slurs that in our culture we wouldn't dare utter. In this culture, the worst thing you could call a Jew was a Samaritan. And in John 8, when the religious leaders are so angry with Jesus, they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. And just a few verses before this story, the the disciples and Jesus are traveling through Samaria and the Samaritans aren't all that hospitable, understandably. And the disciples want Jesus to call down fire upon them to burn them all up. Such was the hatred. That is who comes walking down the road. That is who Jesus holds up as the hero of the story. How will the Samaritan respond to the man lying in the road, bloody and beaten? The self-preserving fear that this might be abandoned's decoy is overcome with compassion. He goes to him. He bandages his wounds. He would not likely have had bandages. So he's tearing 
the only outfit he probably has to bandage this man up. He pours out his most prized possessions, oil to soften the bruises and ease the pain, wine as antiseptic. And then he soils what remains of his clothing with blood as he lifts the man up onto his horse and takes him to an inn. He likely had somewhere else to be, somewhere where he was needed, but all of that is put aside as he cares for the man through the night. And in the morning, he gives the innkeeper enough to cover between a month and two months of care and lodging, promising to do even more if there should be need. Those listening to Jesus would be in stunned silence. To the question, who is my neighbor, designed to limit the scope of love, Jesus is just blowing the lid off. A neighbor is anyone in need. Even the one you loathe. That person in your life that you find the hardest to love. Can you picture them now? And our love of them is to be marked with compassion, self-sacrifice, generosity. Wow. A final question closes off the interaction. Who proved to be a neighbor? A question of definition, who is my neighbor, is answered by an invitation to a whole new way of life. Who proved to be a neighbor? And the scribe responds, the one who showed him mercy. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise is Jesus' response. Now, if the scribe is feeling condemned by his own answer, how do you think he's feeling right now? I think to hear this parable rightly, to let the Holy Spirit do his work in us through it, we've got to enter into the space that the scribe now occupies. This is the love the Lord requires of us. Do we see such love reflected in us? As I look at this, I'm not even sure I love those closest to me with this kind of love. For my love of them is often tainted with self-centeredness. I put limits on love to preserve my comfort, my agenda, my priorities. To love a stranger this way, an enemy this way. This is the love the Lord requires of us. Will we be drawn into the space the scribe now occupies? crushed and convicted by the magnitude of love the Lord requires. I think the parable is meant to bring us to see and to say, Lord, I cannot love the way you call me to love. I cannot love the way you call me to love. Can you say that with me? Lord, I cannot love the way you call me to love. I cannot love the way you call me to love. Jesus has deeply wounded the scribe. The parable, crushed and convicted by the magnitude of love the Lord requires of us, we will be wounded as well. But Jesus wounds us because he loves us. He wounds us so he can heal us. Like an expert surgeon who must cut 
in order to make us whole. Well, how? I I mean, Jesus just ends the conversation there. He leaves the scribe wounded, crushed, convicted by the magnitude of love the Lord requires. But the power of a parable is that it invites us in to take our place in the story, to inhabit it, to allow it to write a new story on our hearts. You see, it's striking the way that Jesus tells the parable. Because you could imagine getting at the same point in the parable by telling it this way. A Samaritan was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, put upon by thieves, stripped, beaten, left for dead, Peace, priest, Levite, Walk by on the other side. But a scribe, a lawyer, comes down the road, and at risk to his life, he moves with overwhelming compassion, bandages his wounds, tender care, generous, who proved to be a neighbor. The scribe. It's the same point, right? Your neighbor is anyone in need, even an enemy. Love them as you would love yourself. But how would the scribe respond? I mean, how would you respond in such a situation? Don't you think all of our defenses would go up, right? All of our justifications for remaining in anger and hatred would push violently back against what we're being asked to do. Really? There's no way. Can you... They did all of this stuff to me. Come on now. I'm not going to do that. But the parable doesn't invite the scribe doesn't invite us to inhabit the place of the one expressing the magnitude of love the Lord requires. Indeed, there is only one character in the story that has literally been stripped of all identifying features. And who is that character? It's the one lying on the road, beaten, robbed, left for dead. It is there that we're being invited to take our place within the story. Imagine for a moment you're headed home one fall night. You decide to take a shortcut through a back alley. You hear heavy footsteps behind you, and before you can turn around to see what's coming, a blow to the back of the head. Your wallet, your purse, your phone taken, your jacket stripped from your back, your shoes pulled off your feet, blows pummel down upon you as your eyes are swollen shut, as pain erupts from every nerve ending, the taste of blood thick in your mouth, life draining from your body. You lie there motionless, unable to speak, unable to move. Time passes. Hours, it seems. Hope eroding. You hear footsteps. They slow. Your heart leaps. But then they speed up and fade away. More time. Footsteps. They slow. Your heart leaps. They speed up. Fade away. More time. Life draining from your body. Footsteps. But these don't speed up and fade away. They they slow. You feel an arm gently come under your neck, lift you up, 
Press a water to your mouth. A cool, damp cloth wiping blood from your face. As they wipe the blood from your eyes, pull them open and get a momentary glimpse of that person. The one you loathe. Or a representative of those people whose behavior, ideology, political convictions you find reprehensible. Gently they lift you up, place you in the back of a car, and they drive you to the hospital. They stay with you through the night. In the morning, they've left an envelope thick with cash and a phone, a new phone, with their number in it. Anything you need, just call. I'm here for you. In that place, what's going on in your heart? That is the place in the story that Jesus invites us to inhabit. Jesus asks, which of the three proved to be a neighbor? And we're often told that the scribe answers, the one who showed mercy because he couldn't bring himself to utter the word Samaritan. But I wonder if his focus has been drawn to the main point of the parable. It is mercy. It is love that transforms our hearts to love. We love because he's first loved us. For you and I indeed were the person in the road, dead in sin, unable to love as the Lord requires, unable to help ourselves. As Paul put it, we're an enemy of God in our sin, an enemy of God in our failure to love those whom God has created. But Jesus, the true good Samaritan, poured out the riches on you and for you at the cross, impoverished himself for you, laid down everything he had for you. You and I have been lifted up by the one who had every reason to reject us. And yet, and yet he stoops down, takes our flesh, takes our sin to the cross, and washes it all away, giving us new life and a new future. Unless we see and know and receive that love, this parable will simply be a moralistic story that would crush us with its demands if we took it seriously. But when we see the glorious love of God for us in Jesus, it shapes our hearts to love as we have been loved. He wounds us so he can heal us. Jesus brings us with the scribe to be crushed and convicted by the magnitude of love the Lord requires so that we might be humbled to receive his love and receiving it would be transformed bit by bit to reflect this love for this love is a function of grace. The scribe came with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a question designed to trap Jesus, but the yearning behind the question, I think, was genuine. How do I inherit eternal life? 
I'm yearning for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. I'm yearning for Messiah to come and bring a kingdom of full flourishing in every aspect of life. And Jesus ultimately answers that genuine yearning behind his question by wounding him, crushing him, convicting him of the magnitude of love the Lord requires, humbling him that he might be open to receive the love that Jesus offers, that bit by bit he might reflect that love. Did he receive it? We may never know. Serve our world. It's a yearning for the kingdom, for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. It's about justice, freedom for the captives, hope for the poor and the marginalized, advocating for a better world. But if it is not born of compassionate, self-sacrificing, generous love, if it is not born of a love for victim and perpetrator alike, born of a love for friend and enemy alike, not born of our eyes fixed on King Jesus and his love displayed for us on a cross, it will more than likely serve a kingdom other than the kingdom of Jesus. So may we be wounded, crushed, convicted by the magnitude of love our Lord requires, so that we would be healed by his love to reflect that love for his kingdom's sake and to his glory. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.